Welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Nails Are Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review or orthopedic and training exam review. Please, if you have not already, tell your co-residents. If you're if you're listening to this by yourself and you're not sharing the info with your co-residents, come on. You gotta be a team player. We are all trying to make each other better throughout this entire process and that being said if you are listening to this and you hear and note something that you think is obviously wrong or we have gotten something incorrect please feel free to email us and let us know at nailedortho at gmail.com but again you're now tuned into our oite review featuring myself and dr spencer woolwine and we are um, sadly finishing up um, the lower extremity of sports here but we will have some uh, upper extremity to follow so Without further ado, please enjoy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, switching gears, um, say, for example, you have a, you know, 32 year old male who played football uh, back in the day. And uh, was very active, but you know now he's just kind of complaining of um, some knee pain, mostly on the insides of his knees. And you are seeing this this gentleman in your clinic, and your X-ray tech says, "Okay, you you say you want some X-rays," and your your X-ray tech says, "What X-rays do you want to help to evaluate the extent of tibial femoral arthrosis?" Which I doubt they'll ask, but. <laughs> the question I'm asking is, uh, <laughs> what radiographs can you obtain to uh, evaluate the extent of tibial femoral arthrosis? Um, the, uh, yeah, the best view for that is the uh, PA uh, or posterior to anterior flexion view at about 45 degrees um, of flexion. And you want to make sure that it's a weight-bearing radiograph. So um, obviously weight bearing radiographs for arthritis of both the hip and knee are ideal just because of, uh, gravity and truly showing what it looks like. But, um, yeah, it's that 45 degree PA flexion weight bearing radiograph also called the, the Rosenberg views. Um, and, uh, because we're kind of staying within the, uh, sports world and all of that, the, uh, what's the mechanical axis of the lower extremities? Yeah, so the mechanical axis of the limb is going to be a line drawn from the center of the hip through the knee, through the ankle. Okay, that's what the uh, mechanical uh, axis is. And then you know, when we get into joints, we'll talk about you know anatomical axis and a whole bunch of other things. But that's what the mechanical axis of the limb is. Then you also have a mechanic, and you have um, you know the anatomical axis of the different bones. Um, again, we'll get more into that when we talk about, you know, joints, but just for a quick overview, the anatomical axis of, uh, of the femur is a little bit different from the mechanical axis of the femur. It's in a little bit of, um, uh, I think it's around six to eight degrees of valgus or so from the mechanical axis versus if you look at the tibia, the tibia has the same mechanical and, uh, and anatomic axis of, of that bone. So those are both the same. Yeah. Um, so, uh, when, since we, we touched base on kind of what the overall, what the mechanical axis is, but so now when we're looking at the knee joint line orientation, what is the normal knee joint line orientation in relationship to the mechanical axis of the limb? 
So the mechanical or the, the knee joint line, it should be around either parallel with the floor to about three degrees of varus, uh, just because with how the uh, femur anatomic axis in relation to the mechanical axis um, sits on the tibia, it's not going to be uh, exactly zero or, or parallel with the floor. So uh, around three degrees of varus is, around, is where that normal knee joint line orientation is. Um, and let's say you, uh, you have a patient coming in They're again, kind of similar to that, uh, that football player you're talking about in his thirties still thinks he got it still. And, um, <laughs> he, but he does have joint space narrowing on, on one side. Uh, is that what, what kind of, uh, treatment options are you thinking for this patient rather than like a, a 55 to 65 year old patient. Yeah. So for these young patients that have like single compartment arthritis, right? Like they have a, a medial compartment or, you know, lateral compartment arthritis um, that may be a little too young for, you know, an arthroplasty for like a total joint arthroplasty or for a unicompartmental arthroplasty. If say, for example, you're 25 years old, um, patients that just have these single compartment arthritis is either patients for which you can kind of maybe a, a knee osteotomy may be an in, may be um, indicated in these patients you know and, and the goals of of these knee osteotomies are is to maintain the joint line perpendicular to the leg mechanical axis so what this does is if you have a patient that has a varus knee you kind of transfer that mechanical axis to the unaffected compartment so if you if your mechanical axis of the limb is very medial so you draw that line from um, from the center of your femoral head down to your ankle and that line is is way medial to the joint line or to the knee like say you have the severe varus deformity um, the an osteotomy would be transferring that um, transferring the mechanical axis to the unaffected compartment so after whatever osteotomy may be the for example, in this case, we have the varus knee or you have a um, significant medial compartment arthritis, the mechanical axis will be transferred more towards the lateral side of the knee. Now, I guess since we're talking about a varus knee, what is a typical treatment? And again, this isn't all the time, but what are, you know, a, a common treatment for varus knee deformity? Yeah, and, and a young patient, uh, like we're talking about, that's going to be a, a HTO or high tibial osteotomy. Um, the varus and the reason for that, so uh, this was one place where I had to kind of sit down and, and read and learn about it a bit more. And, and it's because a, a lot of the pediatric osteotomies are done in the femur. Uh, but a lot of the adult osteotomies are done in the knee. And I was just kind of figuring out why. And it's really because the, uh, the varus in the adult population is usually due to the proximal tibia uh, deformity. And so by doing a valgus producing or a medial opening wedge high tibial osteotomy for a varus knee, you'll transfer those forces from the medial compartment over to the lateral compartment because you're creating more of a uh, valgus type knee, which 
uh, if you're just kind of sitting there at your desk listening to this, uh, stand with your knees in valgus and you'll see that you're actually putting more pressure on the uh, lateral femoral condyles into the lateral tibial plateau by doing that. And, and so that's the reason for that. Um, but uh, these tibial osteotomies are not without their own concerns and possible complications. So uh, increasing tibial slope can occur with these osteotomies. And what, what does that do to the overall kind of structure or function of the knee? Yeah. So that increases your anterior tibial translation and, and uh, I don't know the way, the way I think of it, which may not be the right way, but it somehow leads me to the, the right answer is uh, when you're increasing the slope, if you're looking laterally, it's like you're aiming the saw down more. So you're, you're increasing that, um, that angle. So you're increasing the posterior slope. So in my head, if you're the, if you're the posterior femoral canals on top, either those will kind of slide down that ramp or you'll just have kind of the, the tibia is going to be translated anteriorly in comparison with the posterior, uh, with the condyles. So what that'll do is you have, if you have an, uh, an ACL intact, we know that ACL stops um, anterior translation of the tibia. So when you have, you know, these patients, we really increase their, uh, increase their slope. Uh, this is going to increase that anterior translation of the tibia, and it's going to put more stress on the ACL versus the opposite is if you decrease the slope, you, you uh, decrease that anterior tibial translation, you increase the posterior tibial translation. So I think of it the opposite, like, and again, if you just take an extreme example, if you make a cut that's that's really, that's angled 45 degrees upwards, uh, yeah, I tend to think like those condyles will just slide on down and that tibia is going to be posterior in comparison to the condyles. So what is the ligament that stops posterior translation of the tibia? That's going to be our PCL. So you have increased stress on your PCL. So that is what increasing the tibial slope does versus decreasing the tibial slope. Uh, again, increasing tibial slope puts more stress on the ACL and, um, and decreasing the tibial slope puts more stress on the PCL. Now, uh, you, you talked a little bit about it earlier, but what is a typical treatment for, you know, an adult, uh, a valgus knee deformity? So, yeah, the valgus and the varus, um, and, and one more quick thing about the, the tibial osteotomies and the slope, um, some of these questions that are coming up uh, that I'm seeing more of is um, obviously we're trying to avoid uh, total knee arthroplasty or even uh, uh, unicondylar knee arthroplasty in these younger patients. Um, but uh, where the ACL and the PCL come into play with this is the question will state something like uh, five years ago, or something, um, the patient sustained an ACL rupture, decided on non-operative management, and now they have a single compartment arthritis. Um, what is the kind of optimal treatment for this uh, knee in this instance? And they'll show you uh, a knee that's also, that has a varus deformity in it. And at that point, you'll do a combined high tibial osteotomy with an ACL reconstruction. Um, but what you'll also do with this high tibial osteotomy is you will uh, decrease the slope of the knee to help 
put less stress on that ACL reconstruction you just did. So you kind of mm. have to do both where the ACL gets reconstructed, but you're doing a high tibial osteotomy with also decreasing the slope. So the answers one through four or something will say like just an ACL reconstruction, a high tibial osteotomy with increased posterior slope. And like you uh, put before, increasing the posterior slope actually puts more stress on the ACL. So that would be worse for the patient. High tibial osteotomy with a decreased posterior slope, meaning a more flat tibia helps the ACL. And so it, it, it kind of comes into play and you just have to think about these things in, uh, in a three-dimensional space and how you're going to most protect the ACL reconstruction and offload their medial compartment arthritis. So uh, they do come up, but um, again, I think if you just think about it in a succinct manner, then the questions are pretty straightforward. Um, but going back to that, I, I took a little detour, but going back to that valgus knee deformity you were talking about, and again, uh, the um, valgus knees, we see a lot more in kids. We do see them in adults, but uh, the valgus knees are usually due to a uh, distal femoral uh, uh, deformity. And so, uh, although a lot of the tibial osteotomies are done because of ferrous knees in adults, these you will be doing some valgus uh, supracondylar or varus producing osteotomies in a valgus knee. And it's mostly due to that lateral femoral condyle hypoplasia. Um, mm. I know that that's a lot of varus and valgus that I just spewed out. But again, <laughs> to just reiterate here, uh, in a patient with a valgus knee, you're going to do a varus producing osteotomy to improve their valgus alignment. Uh, and that's going to be more in the supracondylar region of the distal femur. Um, and that then, would be, uh, so that would be yeah. a closing. No, that'd be an opening wedge. I always had to think about these. Uh, yep. If you're, if you it'd have a valgus, it'd be an opening wedge. Yeah. Versus, you know, versus if you had a medial side of deformity or not a medial side, if you had a varus deformity of the knee, some of the options for that, if you were to, if you were to operate on the femoral side of things would be a closing wedge uh, osteotomy to, to, to kick it out into valgus some. So these opening yeah. wedge osteotomies are going to give you some more varus versus closing wedge. And this we're talking about a distal femur versus a closing wedge is going to give you some more, uh, some more valgus. Exactly. Um, okay. So uh, what are some of the complications that can come from a high tibial osteotomy? Yeah, so the most common complication is actually just going to be the loss of the correction. So you you, know, you did all your pre-op planning and you got so excited. We all high-fived each other after the cases. It, it went so great. X-rays look good. And then, you know, a couple months down the line, you, you get some X-rays and you see your correction is lost a little bit. So that is the most common complication. Other complications can include a lateral cortex fracture. So I don't know what technique every, a lot of people are using, but say you're using an osteotome or, or a saw or something uh, that, that you go a little too far and you actually um, uh, break the lateral cortex, which is you know, 
which is a complication of it. And you know, you have to tell the patients, but that's one of the complications. Another one is a delayed union or non-union. So if you have somebody that is a smoker, this is a this is a high um, this is a one of the higher uh, complications. So if you, again, if you have a smoker, uh, you know you really got to counsel these patients, try to get them to stop smoking if you can until that thing is healed. Uh, you know, other things include anytime you're operating with the, the lower extremity, you know, compartment syndrome, hardware prominence, because if you're doing a medial sided, you likely have medial sided hardware and you can feel your own shin bone and see how subcutaneous uh, some, you know, plate and screws would feel there. So, you know, those are uh, some of the complications following a high tibial osteotomy. So uh, I think that I think we have. Uh, belabored the ligaments and the um, and the sportsy uh, malalignment knee things, um, knee conditions, and yeah, we, can, yeah. we can move to the to the front of the knee and um, talk about a little address our patellofemoral joint, which is a, this is probably feeling a little bit neglected right now. Um, so what is uh, what is jumper's knee and what is the treatment of it? So jumper's knee is a uh, tendinosis of the uh, patellar tendon at the inferior pole of the patella. Um, it's kind of called mucoid degeneration of the uh, patellar tendon attachment. Um, the uh, treatment for this is uh, rehab, rehab, rehab. I mean, a lot of stretching uh, and eccentric quadriceps uh, exercises, a lot of kind of uh, jumping mechanics, uh, proprioceptive work, because uh, the the common person who gets this, obviously, are the jumpers, so the basketball players, the uh, plyometric athletes in tracks, so uh, long jumpers, high jumpers, even some sprinters. Um, and they focus so much on their individual sports that they um they kind of neglect the other musculature needed to fully balance out the knee and so uh rehab is going to heal almost all of these patients if they are, allow it time to to heal and then kind of different from that is the housemaid's knee uh what is that and what's the treatment yeah so this is a condition that can be seen with somebody that that are on their knees a lot. So this could be like a plumber, um, how, you know, traditionally a housemaid would be on their knees cleaning. And that could be seen in wrestlers, anybody that pretty much kneels a lot. And what this is, is pretty much pre-patellar bursitis. Uh, and again, it's associated with prolonged kneeling. And you can kind of have uh, pain, uh, some tenderness palpation right on the anterior aspect of the knee. So this should be in your differential for anterior knee pain. And the treatment for this is going to be largely supportive, uh, you know, some people use ACE wraps and, um, you know, rice, uh, elevate, you know, you can ice it as well. And, but, you know, one thing to note is that in wrestlers, um, a lot, there are a lot of proponents for aspirating these to rule out infection, to rule out any type of staph infection or anything else going on. So I always, always know that. Um, we're still talking about some knee things. So um, what is iliotibial band or IT band syndrome? And what is its treatment? And what and what patients are these going to be seen in? Uh, the so the IT band syndrome, it's also called like IT band friction syndrome, is uh, obviously laterally based because that's where the IT band is and where it crosses the knee. And it's 
commonly seen in those who uh, those athletes that undergo repetitive knee flexion. I know it sounds weird. We're repetitive knee flexion and extension, but we're not talking about like just your your normal baseball player or football player that runs for a few seconds and then the play's over. I mean, these are like the cyclists or the uh, runners and notably like the uh, the outdoor runners, um, uh, like the uh, trail running going up and down hills uh, where they are kind of working with a lot of knee flexion to extension over time. Uh, that person, that area kind of wears out and you get this friction over the knee. And so every time the knee bends, the uh, IT band is is rubbing on that area and uh, can cause pain over that lateral aspect of the knee. Um, it's uh, It can result in kind of cyst or bursitis uh, in the uh, lateral uh, knee recess uh, area, but it's... Um, Usually not something that is too concerning. Again, it's a lot of just rehab, uh, stretching out the uh, iliotibial band. Um, the one provocative test for it is called the OBER test, uh, O-B-E-R, and that is designed to detect iliotibial band tightness. And uh, essentially what you're doing is you're um, laying the patient on their side with their symptomatic knee uh superior. So if their right side hurts, they're laying on their left so that you you can evaluate their right knee. You flex the knee to 90 degrees to place tension on the IT band and you bring your hip from uh, flexion and abduction into extension and adduction. And you'll either feel a clicking over the knee or they'll be very tight and the knee won't want to adduct past midline because the iliotibial band is uh, too tight. Um, But again, the treatment for this is rehab, rehab, rehab. And then if they've failed months and months of rehab, you can do a Z lengthening uh, of the iliotibial band if necessary, but this is not a a common thing to do for uh, young athletes that are very responsive to to their rehab. and then moving on to, I think, a much more important topic for one, orthopedics in general, and two, uh, just test taking boards or OITE or uh, testing in the OR by the attendings is uh, patellofemoral instability. Um, so what are the different uh, etiologies for patellofemoral instability? Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of different um, etiologies, and, and we have a podcast episode with Dr. Yang who goes over uh, patellar instability that goes into this topic in detail for any of you all interested in learning some more about this and we go into more detail. But kind of just a, a general overview, of, you know, obviously patellofemoral joint, your kneecap and your, and, your, and your femur, your trochlea, and you can have instability there, pain or dislocation events or subluxation events, uh, anything that involves the patella not being centrally um, located in the the trochlea groove. And there are multiple different reasons. One, you can have a rupture of your uh, medial patellofemoral ligament or MPFL rupture. This could be from a traumatic cause or a traumatic dislocation event. You can can also have patella or trochlear dysplasia. So 
your trochlea can um, can there may, you may have a hypoplastic trochlea on one side or or, or or something is wrong with the bony constraints of the patella and the trochlea that's not allowing the, the, the normal tracking to take place. Another one is where you can have patella alta, meaning the patella is is higher up in the extremity, so it's not engaging in the, with those bony constraints, and it has more soft tissue constraints, uh, which make it a little bit less stable. You can also have weakness in some of your muscles, so you can have weakness in your vastus medialis oblique, or the muscle that kind of helps uh, helps keep that patella central in the trochlea. So if you have weakness in that muscle, that can cause uh, that can contribute towards you know your patella moving a little laterally and causing some subluxation, uh, and then you can also just have ligamentous laxity. And for these, you think of your patients like with Ehlers-Danlos and the Marfan syndrome uh, that have these you know type of connective tissue disorders that can also uh, a part of their presentation uh, can be you know this patellofemoral instability. Now, just almost just as important is what are some of the physical exam findings in patients with patellar instability? Because in, I feel like a, a key to a lot of these questions, they'll be like, they have this positive sign of this, 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 and these are all kind of clues that either lead you towards the patellofemoral instability or lead you away from it. So what are some of the physical exam things that you may find? Uh, the, yeah, so there's a bunch of different ones for uh, patellar instability. I think the most, one that's uh, a lot of times in questions is called the J sign. And what that is, uh, the um, it, it's when the patella is already kind of sitting laterally uh, with the knee in extension. And then when the knee goes into flexion, you'll see this patella begin to track in the trochlear groove like it's supposed to. And then as they go back into knee extension, that patella will come out of the trochlear groove and uh, kind of shoot out laterally. And it will make this kind of J-like movement. So, uh, which places them at a higher risk, obviously for uh, patellar instability because the patella is, it's showing that the patella already wants to move laterally. Uh, and in order to get it properly located, it has to engage medially and they require a lot of VMO strength to pull that patella medial so that it can track appropriately. Um, again, and then there's the patellar glide test, which is done with the knee in extension and you are uh, pushing the patella laterally and it's divided into quadrants and you have to kind of make up these quadrants in your head and see how far you're able to move the patella uh, compared to their contralateral limb. And th this patellar instability is good to test on both limbs just because you, a lot of these young athletes, especially these uh, like teenage girls, they're so flexible anyways that what can seem like instability on a physical exam, uh, if you test their other side, it, it, it may be the same. But then uh, the along with the patellar glide is patellar apprehension. So if you are pushing the patella laterally and you're testing which quadrant it will go into and the patient tells you or they they flex their knee or they kind of give some sort of sign that they are afraid that you pushing further is going to actually dislocate their patella, that's a positive sign for patella instability because they, they have this sense that the patella is already going to go 
before it even dislocates. Um, you can also see patellar tilt, which is uh, commonly, uh, you can test it uh, through physical exam, um, but uh, if you get a sunrise view of the knee and you see that the patella is already tracking laterally within the trochlear groove and the medial side of the patella is levering up, that's another indication that there's uh, patellar uh, instability. Uh, the Craig's test, which is uh, another test that uh, has been described where the patient is prone, um, their knee is flexed and internally rotated in increased uh, internal rotation of the uh, leg kind of says that there's more femoral antiversion, which can uh, also pull that patella out laterally more because of Q angle stuff. So, um, but we'll get into, I think the Q angle uh, maybe a bit later or in another talk. But um, again, I think the most, the most important tests are the patellar apprehension and the J sign. Those are the ones you're going to see in the questions more. Uh, but it's just, it's important to know the other ones. So patellar glide and patellar tilt. So, um, obviously we have to start off with x-rays every time we see a new patient. Um, so what are the things you look for on x-ray to evaluate those that come in saying, uh, I feel like my kneecap goes out of place. Yeah. So I feel like the, the workforce, uh, for a lot of these is going to be the lateral, uh, x-ray of the knee. Uh, which is, I mean, that's going to be the workhorse. And number one, how you know you have a good lateral x-ray of the knee is that you have overlap of the posterior condyle. Some people think it's a distal femoral condyle is supposed to get overlap, but as we all know from anatomy, the medial femoral condyle is a little bit larger than the lateral femoral condyle. So as long as you have overlap of those posterior condyles, um, that's how you know that you have a, a you know, that kind of perfect lateral x-ray of the knee. And things that you look for that you can, that you can see is, you know, you try to look at the patellar height. Okay. There are a lot of different ways to look at the patellar height in different ratios. Um, again, which Dr. Yank talked about in, in our, in our podcast episode on patellar instability, but we'll mention one of these is the Catan Duchamp's ratio. And what this is, is the ratio is based on the articular surface of the patella down to the articular surface of the, uh, of the tibia plateau. And a normal uh, ratio for this is going to be less than 1.2. Okay, there are a lot of other different ones, such as like Blackburn Peel is another uh, ratio that you can use. Well, I think commonly used is a Catan Duchamp's ratio. Um, so you you can assess the patellar height on a lateral X-ray. Um, and you one thing you can also do is look at Blumenstadt's line. They normally say that Blumenstadt's line is be somewhere close to the inferior pole of the patella. So that's just a a rough estimate, but the knee has to be within 30 degrees of flexion. If the knee is in full extension, when you get that x-ray, then that line is not going to line up. So again, most of these, your knees in about 30 degrees of uh, flexion. Another thing that you can look at on a lateral x-ray of the knee is going to be trochlear dysplasia. Uh, so you can look to see if there's any any type of a crossing sign. And, and what this is, is when you have your lateral and your medial trochlear facets, and, and your trochlear groove, when they intersect, it indicates that they're all the same height, which they shouldn't be, right? You, you know, you should have different heights of your medial trochlear facet as well as their, uh, as well as the groove, as well as the trochlear groove. 
And so if they're all the same height, that indicates that the trochlea is flat, okay? So which is uh, not conducive for patellar instability. If you're looking at a, uh, if you're looking at a sunrise view, you can look at what's called your sulcus angle or sunrise or your, or your, or your merchant view. You can look at your sulcus angle, which is kind of that, that angle taken along the, um, along the, along the trochlea. Um, and you kind of just draw, I mean, if you just Google sulcus angle, you'll, you'll see what we're talking about, but you, you look at the lines of the, the trochlea, the media and the lateral trochlea, and that angle greater than 145 degrees suggests dysplasia. And to me, that if you think about it, it just means it's more flat. If it's greater, if it's, if it's 180 degrees, that means your, your whole trochlea is flat and you don't have any bony constraints for the patella. Uh, so it should be, it should not be greater than 145 degrees. Then also you can assess your standing lower extremity films. And, and this kind of gives you an, an idea of the overall alignment of the knee. So is the knee in any valgus, which is, which may increase your Q angle. And what you're talking about earlier is that Q angle, it pretty much gives you the uh, angle of the pull of the quadriceps. So you have uh, you have your line from your asis down to your patella. You have another line from your uh, patella down your tibial tubercle. And the angle that those two lines make, again, this is the pull of your quadriceps should be, um, uh, that angle is the Q angle. So increasing that is going to uh, lead you more towards, these things are, are increased uh, you see more increased uh, patellofemoral instability in patients that have a larger Q angle because you have more valgus of a knee. So the quadriceps is being pulled more, the quadriceps pull is more laterally, which means the patella is likely to go a little bit more lateral. And we know in females, this is greater than males, um, somewhere around 12 to 15 degrees is that Q angle. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. If you have not already, please go and leave us a rating in iTunes or however you listen to us. That would really help out a bunch. So I am going to stay silent here for the next 10 seconds and let you go do that because that's literally how long it takes. Okay, that's enough silence. Well, any, anyways, we appreciate you for going and leaving that review. Uh, if you're on your way to go do that, thank you so much, and we will see you again next week.